studying. But try to feel them deeply and see how each one builds upon the ones before. The spirit of where we started was to realize that all of karmic law is designed to help us to expand our sense of identity. And the way we express that is with the thought that we're here to serve. The simple thought to give, to give to others. How can I give? How can I serve? And the image we had for that is to imagine the heart as a shiny silver orb. We polish it with our devotion and our love for God and for God and man. And then we see that heart, shiny silver sphere radiating outward in all directions. Once we establish ourselves in the thought of giving, the next image Swami offered us is of money itself pouring down upon us like rain from the heavens in the form of beautiful gold. Gold is a valuable metal, but it's also inherently beautiful. So when we think about financial abundance in this image, we think of it as beautiful golden coins, shining, glistening, radiantly magnetic, And we see how the form of those golden coins coins falling upon us, filling our hands, spilling over from our hands, merges into a flow of golden light. That the power behind those golden coins is nothing but golden light. We feel our hands filled over and that golden light spilling down across our laps, making a pool of gold flowing out in all directions, feeling that power of the infinite flow. In this lesson we go back to our sense of unity with a greater reality. We visualize this web woven like a spider's web, beautiful pattern with threads of light. And that web stretches out infinitely in all directions. And we're looking at that golden thread-like web glistening in the sunlight And we see ourselves and all those who share this planet as individual glistening drops of dew descended from heaven, descended from the higher spheres, individual drops of divine substance 
And yet at the same time, because we exist upon this golden web, through that web, we are connected. Because water soaking into a web, where does the web begin? Where does the drop end? So even though we see all these individual droplets underneath it, these threads of light bind us to one another. And we come back to our first thought, how can we give? What can we give? What would God want us to give? How can we be an instrument of carrying out our responsibilities in such a way as also to serve? For this, Swamiji tells us we need to develop intuition, which comes from a clear thought focused at the spiritual eye. Answer received in the heart. Swamiji has also told us a way to manifest is when we receive that answering guidance in the heart to lift the thought again to the spiritual eye, see it focused there, and send forth a powerful beam of light and will that circulates, circles around, spins around that clear intuition. We project our will through that power of spinning light around the circle of our divine intention. Om peace. Amen. Good evening, everyone. We are now up to lesson three. We've managed to progress all the way to lesson three, which you can see how long it's going to take us. Uh, Do we have any questions or lingering thoughts from anything that we've studied before or something that this lesson brought up before we go forward. You are a very, very untalkative crowd. You're very disappointing in that respect. Thank you. I wanted you to know that. I thought perhaps I could shame you into speaking. Go ahead, Barbara. <laughs> I seem to have succeeded. In the uh, visualization, it's on. Yeah. But you need to come closer. In the visualization where you're um, the silver orb. Mm-hmm coming out in all directions. It feels almost as though it's um, kind of a shield, an orb, a shield. Oh, Hmm. it's an interesting question. She said the uh, image of polishing the heart as a silver orb can feel like a shield. Well, you know, sometimes people do give to protect themselves um, because they, they want energy to be moving out and they don't want anything to be coming in. Um, I I had that experience once in meditation when I was in seclusion and I uh, realized that uh, all my attention was on going out and I wasn't getting anywhere and I all of a sudden decided to see what would happen if I just allowed energy to come in and I discovered that I was quite uncomfortable with just letting energy come in that uh, 
there was a very strong um, resistance, which was, interestingly, it was made up of, essentially the way it felt to me was it was made up of all the disappointments that I'd ever experienced in all my incarnations and all the angers, all the resentments that had come as a consequence of that. You know, just that tendency when things don't quite go the way that we want them to go, we, we, we often endure by hardening up a little bit and rather than becoming sort of softer and letting it run through us, we become a little bit hard and we, we push back. And I could feel, spiritually speaking, that the issue and I suspect that I wasn't the only one like this, was to have the courage, really, oddly enough, to let go of all that. To really just allow um, past suffering to just go away instead of holding on to it um, in some kind of perverse commitment. Does that make sense? Um, Let me just think if I can say that differently. Hold on just a moment. Ah, it was part of my self-definition. That was it. Um, My righteous anger about certain things, my sense of entitlement about things that hadn't been given to me, my sense of superiority because so-and-so had treated me so badly and I was still their friend. You know, all those sorts of things all became part of my self-definition and to actually let go of that and who would I be if I wasn't holding on to those things. Um... I was surprised how nervous it made me. So it's not surprising, to come back to your question, that when we start concentrating in the heart, that whatever is in there is going to start showing itself if we add energy to it. Now, of course, um, the whole image here is the opposite of that because what we're trying to do is we're trying to let energy flow through us. Um... But often when we do these exercises, what they do is they make us more aware. And when we become aware of that, then that begins to tell us what the blocks of our energy are. It's not so easy. Um, I recall a meditation class I, I taught once, Meditation 1. And after the, that was a very talkative class, as distinct from this one. And they... Um, <laughs> After the first week, they came and asked questions. And every single person had a different problem with meditation. One said, as soon as I quiet my mind, I become very sad. Another one said, as soon as I try to sit still, I have all this anger at so-and-so that comes up. Another one said, all I can think about is what I'm going to have for lunch. A third one said, my body is so uncomfortable. And, And... None of them wanted to keep meditating because of all these factors. And one just said that they were hysterically restless. You know, just felt like, get me out of here as fast as I can. Um, But what I was saying to them is none of those states were created by the fact that you start to meditate. In fact, all of those conditions have been the underlying quality that's been pushing the direction of your life. It's just that when you suddenly stop distracting yourself you become conscious of what has been under the surface all this time. And usually when I would teach that class in the last class, when everybody's you know, very enthusiastic about meditation, I would talk to them about why people stop meditating. 
And one of the people, reason people stop meditating is because it actually works, which seems like a silly reason to quit. But what happens is meditation is an increase of awareness. And so sometimes what happens when you start meditating is you become more aware. And awareness is a, a sometimes a mixed blessing because, as I say, you, can, you become more aware of the possibility of the high mountain, but from the high mountain you can also look into, down into a valley that you didn't even know was there when you were just sitting at the base of that mountain. And so sometimes you find out what's actually moving around inside of you and... Um, the fool's reaction, which is all of our reaction, is if I don't look at it anymore, it'll go away. Instead of that it'll continue to rule you from the dark. So having said all that, it is necessary when you work with these visualizations that you learn from them. And don't just think. And so just that very thought that as soon as you start concentrating on the heart, you start projecting it outward as something that feels protective, then you need to shift the image a little bit so that there's some kind of a two-way street. Because you don't want to have an image that just makes you more and more powerful without... Because today, what we're talking about is attunement. So also, in a sense, what you're touching there is the great pitfall of, of meditation, the dark side of meditation. Um, there was actually an article in Yoga Journal, this was, must have been 35 years ago, called The Dark Side of Meditation. I believe the dark side of meditation was that it tended to be adopted by compulsive type A personalities and because they needed to relax. And then um, once they got into meditation, they started competing to become God-realized. <laughs> and so the competition was even more intense, and that was the dark side of meditation. <laughs> Don't you just love how anything can be spoiled if we try hard enough? But... Uh, I was uh, I was discussing this I was discussing this with Patrick through email during the week, also, that, um, and Swami touches the same point because Patrick and I some of you may remember from two weeks ago we were having a discussion about I had made the comment and it was a joke and that was the biggest problem is it wasn't recognized as a joke when I was trying to convey Swamiji's thought that we should start with modest goals and actually succeed so I announced to the class that we should aim low which Patrick took appropriate exception with that. (laughs) It's not really being an affirmation, but I was trying to prepare the ground for saying, don't be presumptuous. And uh, Swami touches that point again in this lesson, and we'll come back to it. Um, Now, let me think. Oh, yes. But what I was saying to him, and this is really what this lesson is a lot about, is there's a science to these inner practices, but they have to be practiced with an artist's sensibility which is, okay, so I polish the heart and now I project out this energy. But, but one has to also then be sensitive to what, what the reality of that practice actually is for you. And then, and then follow the avenues that are revealed to you until we can unravel whatever karmic um, entanglements are the root cause of our inability to manifest what we want to manifest. This is where the whole thing started with lesson one, which is um, in lesson two also. Lesson two was about the complexes that keep us from being able to manifest, and Swami's advice was to get over them. But one of the ways we get over them is we become conscious of them. So when we start, you know, imagining ourselves buried in, in gold coins and golden light flowing through us, 
there's a whole a whole lot of different things that come up, starting with, oh, this is silly, to I'm a renunciate, I shouldn't be thinking about money, um, to who knows what. But all of those are what the exercises teach us, and what the exercises teach us is the point of the exercise. You know, self-protection is really the... the the bane of our existence, basically. Um, I've, I've talked many times about Swami Kriyananda's remarkable intuitive intelligence, and I've credited it from my observation to the courage of his heart. It manifests through his seeming through his will and his intelligence, but the origin point, which is again what this lesson is about, is his heart. Because most of us are guided by our preferences. We don't even think about it. We're just guided by our preferences, what I like and what I don't like, the likes and dislikes of the heart. And as a consequence, we are only capable of perceiving a certain slice of reality that fits into the lines that we've already drawn. And so our, literally our intelligence is limited by what we're willing to accept as possible. But Swamiji, because his interest is impersonally in simply what is, which is what he's instructing us to think about now. Therefore, all 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 possibilities are open to him, and he just he's his only his only like or dislike is to be in harmony with divine will and what's trying to happen. And it's very good for us to affirm our willingness, but we also have to be extremely conscious of the fact that there's a great deal of difference between declaring that I'll do whatever God wants me to do, and actually having the, the personal clarity and integration um, to be able to see that clearly. We're all of us blinded by fears and preferences. And that's not anything awful to say, but that's a fact. And we have to work with it as an artist. Which is, oh, my picture is a little off in this way. And even though the only color we were given today was blue, I need to go over here and get a little red because I have to balance this out. And then when I put the red in, I see that I need a little transition color here. And so we take the basic principles of how to paint, so to speak, and then we figure out exactly how that's going to work for us. Does that relate to the question you asked? Yeah. Okay. Does it help with what you were specifically asking? Would you pick? People can't hear you. Uh-huh. Um, I'm understanding more about the visualizations and and how to how it helps each individual uh-huh. go from where they are to where they want to be. Right. So I was just in my mind and in my visualization, the orb going out in all directions felt didn't feel. It felt more solid. It didn't feel like a flow of energy. It felt like a solid. I think of silver as something solid. So uh-huh. I was just right. But I I understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. All right, Ken. Did you have a question or no? Okay. Anyone else? Anna. A lot of people hear this course over the internet, and if. We don't record, we don't speak into a microphone. I get angry letters. Okay? And I don't like getting them. 
Bring it just a little closer to your mouth so your voice can be heard. Say again. Bring the microphone a little closer to your mouth. There you okay. go. I did two visualizations. Uh-huh. Um, one, I know, I'm not going to talk about what, what it was, but what I noticed uh, as an end result. One, it worked perfectly. It just, even today, I'm amazed how it resolved. Uh-huh. And what I did with that one is, um, <clears throat> as you said in class, I kind of focus at this level, I didn't think in a form. I just looked at that point and the problem was there and I sent light. Mm-hmm. For me, it's easy to send light because I see light. And it was there, like something flowing. And for the problem that has been going on at my workplace for years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, after I did what I was supposed to do, mm-hmm. um, I left it to God. Because mm-hmm. uh, Divine Mother, I say, <laughs> at that point I thought I hadn't accomplished anything. Um, and I sent light, and everything just happened. And things that had been really solid problems started working out better, and it totally resolved at a high level at Kaiser. And um, and for me, it's, it happens because when I was sending light to that problem, honestly, uh, I care less about my job and mm-hmm. what happens there. I do care about living here in Ananda and and advancing spiritually. So if I have to lose my job, so be it. Master wants me to do that. That's That's been my thinking. And don't get me wrong, because I leave my feet, my heart, not my soul. My soul belongs to God, but I work my eight hours there. And, but uh, I'm not really personally involved with it. I just go because I need an income, and I need to live here, and I need to tithe, and all those things. Then the other one was my son. I have uh, something is going on with my son, and I start sending light. But immediately I noticed that feelings were there. Hmm. there um, I was sending light, but it was not flowing like with the other problem. And, um, and it still is, is a, an ongoing on things. And just today, because I do a lot of introspection, I can see why it happens and... and I don't know what going to end up, but I have faith in Divine Mother that she's going to take care of it because I cannot. And, uh, but in this second case, I, I can see that uh, because my feelings are involved and it's because yeah. it's my son and, to, and yeah. my greatest love after God, um, I, cannot, I cannot see or perceive very well. Well, Anna, what you're describing, of course, is so natural and... It's the, it's the obvious battleground. Um, the, the trick is to understand that it's not that God wants you to love less. It's that we have to love... Um, we have to love the divine within. It's all a challenge of faith. And I think people's detachment from their children is probably the most difficult thing. There's a very touching story which is said to be true of uh, a man who was a 
great devotee of God and he lived a simple life and he lived in a village. He, he had a wife and he always said to God, you know, any time that you call me away from this world, the image of India is that I'll leave everything and go to the Himalayas. At the, you know, at the moment that you, you ask me to, Lord, I'll leave everything, go to the Himalayas. You have to understand that in the right context. It's not that one would be irresponsible, it's that a higher duty replaces a lesser duty. So if we're learning to love by learning to love people, once that lesson has been learned, then we can retire from the world and love God directly. So this man had always told Divine Mother that anytime you call me, I'll go. And then his wife became pregnant. She had a very difficult labor. She died giving birth. And there's this little child now with no mother. And in this moment, he feels the call that he's supposed to leave. And he says to God, and I know for some of you this whole story is just horrifying, how can I go now? This baby is dependent on me, but I've always said that I would do what you asked of me. So I will go, but my father's heart needs to be comforted. And so whoever was speaking to him inwardly said, all right, you know, hide yourself in the forest and watch. So he's a poor man in this little village and he hides himself in the forest. And then all of a sudden the entourage of a great uh, princess comes through and she hears this baby crying. And she goes in and she sees that the mother has died and the baby is alone and there's no one to take care of it. And she immediately falls in love with the child, picks up the child and carries it off to raise as her own. And then, of course, the man with a, a, a comforted in his heart, knowing that his baby will be cared for, then is able to walk away. I mean, of course, it's a, an absolutely, you know, deeply touching story for those who have the understanding in their mind of just being a guest in this world and everything is given to us as long as it's our responsibility and then we go on. But it's also given to us because we have to understand that these kinds of attachments and feelings are so natural. But what's extremely important is therefore to be very humble about whatever perceptions we have because we see how easily we can be influenced by these feelings. I mean, what you just described was such a perfect illustration. Here I am, I'm genuinely detached for whatever reason you have that detachment. And so therefore you can see, oh, this is what it feels like when I'm free. And this is what it feels like when I'm trying to be free. And so then that just helps us because what Swami's talking about in this lesson is about understanding attunement and intuition, which is a very, very tricky business. Um, And the only way you can learn it, and Swami just says, you know, keep trying. Try to be intuitive. Try to understand. Try to feel things from within yourself. But he's also suggesting that we try because he recognizes how difficult it is. Because oftentimes we have very strong inner feelings about things, but we are within ourselves many levels of consciousness. And merely because something speaks strongly with an inner voice doesn't necessarily mean it's the superconscious part of our nature. Sometimes our subconscious speaks extremely strongly with an inner voice, and very often we feel really in tune with that voice, because after all, it's us. As I remarked once about this one man who had what appeared to me continuous false inspirations, false in the sense because they weren't really taking him upward in consciousness, they were just leading him in circles. And I 
observed also in this particular man, this was many years ago, no one that you, any of you know now, um, that he was very unreceptive to any kind of guidance other than his own. And I said, the reason he feels so comfortable is because there's no one in there but him. <laughs> it's just him and his ego, and they're just going around together, and they're just right all on the same wavelength, so there's no interfering energy. One of the things that I find so extremely interesting about Swami Kriyananda is how openly he solicits other people's opinions. Um, the fact of the matter is, most of the time, he, he knows exactly what he's going to do. But he still, he listens very attentively because of a very simple idea. Think about this for a minute. People will say to me, well, I need to follow my own guidance. And I have often asked when I'm confronted with that attitude, do you think that you are the only soul on the planet who can actually receive guidance? Do you think that nobody on the planet can receive a true thought that might also relate to you? You know, we we become so obsessed and that is the dark side of meditation. We become so um, self-defined that we take even what should be a very expansive reality and instead of expanding it, we contract it. And we become attuned only to our own imaginary ideas. So it's very, very important to be extremely humble, not self-abnegating and not a lack of confidence, but extremely humble about the very real possibility that some buried vritti is influencing us and, and causing us to just perceive things just a little off. I've quoted to you before what Swamiji said to me. I did a whole project once. I mean, it was a big fundraising project and I involved, there were dozens of people involved and we worked on it for a long time and in the end we earned absolutely nothing. It was a total waste because it was totally ill-conceived from the start. And it was conceived by me and ill-conceived by me. And in retrospect, it was, it was conceived with a, a great deal of pride and a kind of competitive energy with other things that had happened. This was all like in my 20s. And that was at the end of that whole debacle, Swamiji said to me, yes, he said, when your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. And I just loved that. I've loved that ever since. Because oftentimes... We do go along thinking that we're doing a good thing, but our ego has gotten involved somehow. And what that means simply is the part of us that identifies with our limited realities. And as long as we're identified with those limited realities, they have the potential to put a screen over us. So we have to be very artistic in the way we find our own guidance even. We don't have to be mindlessly going around soliciting everybody else's opinion, but we have to have enough receptivity that when somebody points out that that is a really terrible idea, we don't immediately say, no, no, it's my idea, I'm the one who had it. You know, it's, it's very, um, well, that's what we're going to talk about, knowledge, inspiration, and energy. But what I was going to say about this, and this is what exactly related to your comment, Anna, is um, you begin to be able to tell the difference. Because you, you have the courage, if you have the courage, to just keep trying. And if you, if you keep trying with enough humility to be honest about your mistakes, then you can begin to tell the difference. Oh, yes, that one really felt like a good idea, but now that I look back on it, I see all these threads that were playing themselves out even in my own mind at the time, and I just push them aside. And then there's other kinds of inspirations that come to you 
that just after a while you begin to recognize when it feels like that, that's a wholly different kind of inspiration. And, and you can begin to discern more. But it, it's, a, it's a huge trial and error process. And this is what Swamiji is urging us in this lesson. Keep trying. Don't just get your ideas from outside. Don't just do what other people have done. Don't just rely on past habit or past tradition. Try to be sensitively aware inside yourself and see how every situation really resonates or doesn't resonate with your own reality. But do it like a scientist. Not with the self-declared reality that I'm always guided from within and so on. You know, my guru is always telling me what to do. Sometimes your guru is telling you what to do and sometimes you're telling yourself what to do, having usurped his name, you know, taken his name in vain, so to speak. <laughs> in vain in the sense because it's not really uh, valid. And, but we have to work with that. So exactly what you described, Anna, which is very dramatic, is an extremely important lesson. I wanted to come back for a moment to Barbara's comment too because I was thinking about what you were saying. Um, Swamiji once made the suggestion to rest in the heart. It was a very interesting comment. And he's also made the very obvious suggestion to connect with people first through the heart. And uh, I was talking to someone during this week too about that specific visualization of polishing the heart. This man was telling me that He's just been practicing, just walking around through his day with that sense of this shiny silver sphere inside of him that's radiating energy out whenever he meets someone. It's a very interesting experiment. I was traveling once, which made it a, a particularly interesting place to try it because almost everyone around me was a stranger. And I was really trying extremely consciously to connect with people first from the heart with that same sense of just that energy is emanating and going into people, it is, well, it's just stunning how completely different our relationships are if we actually behave that way. And a lot of us, not all of us, but some of us, like me, as as a random example, are very oriented, you know, toward thought and tend to communicate first through the mind. But it's really extremely different if if you're pushing that energy outward in that way. And then, of course, you, you make a connection, which is why it can't just be a shield. It has to be a, 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 a link where the river begins to flow in all directions. Some people do that quite naturally. Others have to do it. But it also takes a, a certain amount of courage because all of a sudden we find ourselves intermingling. And we have to have enough strength in ourselves to be able to do that. But it's a a very helpful practice, and it's a it's a good way to get uh, to deal with boredom. <laughs> it's a good way to deal with fear. One of the stories in my book about Swamiji was a story that Bairagi told me. Bairagi since passed away. She was living in San Francisco at, in the late seventies, early eighties, at the time when we had a restaurant, a small restaurant there, and she had to work a late shift. And she had to get back to our house up in Pacific Heights. And the only way she could do it was on the bus. So she had to take a bus about 11 or 12 at night in San Francisco. And she sort of said to Swamiji, you know, I'm a little afraid doing that. And because, uh, you know, not every neighborhood they went through was an uplifted one. And, you know, he explored first whether or not there was any options. But there really weren't. That was really what she had to do. So he told her, he said, just pray 
for the people on that bus. He said, when somebody, you know, just as soon as you sit down, pick different individuals on the bus and really pray while you're on that bus ride. And if, if that person gets off, then pray for someone else. And just don't be on that bus except with this prayerful energy going out from you. She said, as soon as she started doing that, all her, all her fear and all her anxiety left her. And that late night bus ride, she said, became her favorite part of the day. Because all of a sudden, the channel is blessed by that which flows through it. And she was just there. There was nothing happening. I mean, so many jobs are so boring. You know, they just have huge boring segments where we have to sit in meetings where we're, you know, it's just not interesting for us. Or, But there's always something that we can be doing inwardly. And this is in keeping with uh, the statement, all time is wasted that is not spent seeking God. And we can also discover our own lack of willingness to engage. And we can also, again, discover what it is that causes us um, inward confusion. Does that make sense? It's one of the reasons I wanted to trace through all of those images that we've been given so we don't lose them. Because we're, we're, we're building an understanding of magnetism. And you have to understand, this is again, what the, our lesson this week, which I've been coming in and out of, our lesson this week is the intuition that comes from seeing ourselves united with the whole flow. And that's where the power of intuition comes from. The power of intuition doesn't come from my ideas. The power of intuition is expanding beyond that limited self and really seeing the whole picture. I'm going to throw in something that's not in these lessons, but that's just sort of been uh, in, an interesting insight that's been coming to me. Swamiji recently found these books by, I forgot his first name, but his last name is Von Prager. And he's a man who sees ghosts. He calls them ghosts. Ghosts, um, uh, it's really, uh, what he sees is, is uh, souls without bodies. He sees astral beings. That's the word I want to use. Astral beings are human beings who have died to this physical world but are still very much alive because our consciousness doesn't die. He calls them all ghosts, but the word ghosts really refers to what he calls um, earthbound souls, souls that have died to this earth but are still bound to the earth. And that's what our normal word for ghost is, is it somebody who's haunting a place when they really shouldn't be there anymore. Um, so he speaks of earthbound ghosts and free ghosts, but I would rather say spirits. That's easier. But because, and it's, his, his books are very interesting. The first book, I only read one of them, and it's called Ghosts of Some Sort, Ghosts Among Us or something like that. And from a very young age, this man has simply had the ability to see the astral world. I don't think he's a saint. Um, he's a good man, but he, I, don't think he, I don't think it comes to him from um, full superconsciousness. It's just a talent he has, like some people can sing or handle money or paint. He, he has developed the, the ability to be able to see the non-physical worlds. So he's very much aware of the fact that at all times, intermingling with us, there are lots of other people. They just don't have bodies, so we can't see them because we don't have, with our material eyes, we don't see them. And he talked about, you know, in churches, angelic beings come when happy things are happening. In, you know, opium dens, dark souls come who want to suck that energy and try to sort of be there. And if you're sensitive at all, one feels those vibrations. I, I remember I was, when we were talking about this, I was telling Swamiji that when we first moved into this church, which was built as a Catholic church, 
about 1940 or 1950 and was their church until 1994 when the Catholic Church, the Catholics sold it to us. And there had been a big crucifix and the whole thing. We've since changed the way it looks, but it had, there had been this big table. It, it, it was designed for when the priests had their back to the congregation and just did the Mass there. And of course, they turned it around. Um, but after all those decades of, of male priests dressed in black, all of a sudden, in our first Sunday here, you know, I'm facing out and I'm a woman and I'm dressed in white. And I really, I can't quite see them, but I, I knew they were there. There were this whole line of priests back there. And they were not pleased. That's about the only thing I can say. They were really, really not pleased. And I sort of, you know, would relate to the congregation. I could just feel their disapproval back there. The second or third week, finally, mentally, I just sort of said, Look! You know, it was your place, it's now ours, get over it! And just kind of push them away. Because it was silly for them to just sit here and disapprove. Time marches on. I'm always amused in uh, Assisi, Italy. There's uh, right around the main square in Assisi, there's a... a temple that is dedicated to the Divine Mother. It's a, it's a Mary temple. Except everyone calls it the Minerva temple because it was, in fact, a temple dedicated to the goddess Minerva. And then when the Catholics drove out the pagans, then they took it over and made it into a church of Mary. And that's, these things happen. So the Catholics have been driven out of this one and we've moved into it. And places just shift in their realities and we have to go with what's happening. But now, going back to this man, he tells all these fascinating stories in a very, very matter-of-fact way of just all these um, non-physical beings and how they're all around us all the time. You know, are the people who love us, who loved us in this world, if they have a high enough consciousness, often hang around and try to help us still. And... Uh, and, you know, he's, he does entertainment kind of things where he'll be in an audience and he'll say, oh, I see someone named Bill who was killed in an automobile accident and he's looking for the one with the little Pekingese dog and she starts, Louise starts crying, yes, yes, it's my Uncle Bill, it's my Uncle Bill. But he's, he's, it's a real thing. Um, but the world he describes, it's the same world Master describes, which is that the astral and the physical worlds are, are, are happening in the same place. It's not like they're over in Fresno and we're all here, you know. <laughs> it's, it's vibrations. And the vi- vibrations are taking place simultaneously if we could feel them. Which we do feel them, we just don't know what we're feeling. But here's the part I'm, I'm the point related to this. Is that at all times, darker spirits are trying to pull us into darker things because they're trying to suck our energy. They want our, That's how he puts it. The, the ones who are earthbound have to get their energy from people. And so they're always trying to get energy by pushing us into darker circumstances because if they're dark souls, they want to be in those circumstances so they want to um, get us to get into those places where people take drugs, where they drink a lot, where um, you know uh, inappropriate sensuality happens. You know, just things that pull the consciousness down, heavy energies. If, you, if you're sensitive and you go to places like that, you just feel it. It feels like there's dark beings there. And there are dark beings there. And they're, they're urging us on to do dark things so they can have part of our energy and be part of that story. Wow. And simultaneously, there's angelic beings who are always there 
coaxing us toward good things, always trying to inspire us, always trying to give us good ideas. And um, the, the divine works through these instruments. This is something that Master says all the time. God, God needs instruments. That God is not this force that just acts by itself. It's a force of consciousness that living beings tune into and manifest. And just in the same way that we're all helping each other and Anna's talking about her love for her son and I know I saw many of you who have children nodding your heads because you know what that bond is like and how your consciousness is always going out to them even after they've long left your nest. As parents always tell me, you never stop being a parent. It's just always there. Well, the, the human is just the merest pale imitation of what the divine is. And, and the human being's capacity to love this one or two or so many beings because they emanated from our physical body compared to the, the power of divine love that recognizes... I mean, it's because we have this sense of unity with the individual that we gave birth to, but the divine gave birth to the whole of creation and that sense of unity is complete. So there's this constant desire to uplift us. And there are these beings acting on behalf of the divine as angelic forces, constantly trying to uplift us. And this is the fascinating thing. It's constantly happening all around us. Our, our, our singing group here, our small choir, when Swamiji wrote the piece of music which is now called Life Mantra, it, at that time it was also called Chant of the Angels, It's that long 10-minute piece, life is a mission from on high, life is a quest for inner joy. It's a very tight harmony for the choir to sing. And the song is 11 minutes, and it's just this repeating mantra, beautifully sung. And when he first wrote that, he, he heard it. He heard the angel chorus singing it, and he wrote it down. He wrote it in one day. He said he could never have done it in any other way except that he heard it. And so our choir here... Um, immediately started practicing it because he was coming to visit or a small group started practicing so that we could perform it for him so he could hear it sung. And there was about five or six people in that group and they were uh, practicing one day and they stopped, they finished their little part and they stopped singing for a moment and three of the five of them heard the voices continue. And they, they knew that there was like an angel chorus sort of helping them sing it helping them hear the parts and stay in their parts. And they just, just all of a sudden, they, I guess the angels were so excited they forgot. They didn't notice that the humans had stopped. I mean, many times, I, especially with this music that we sing here, I've been part of the groups or I've, I've sat in the audience and they're just, the number of voices that you hear is way more than the number of bodies that you see. There's just no way that many people could make that full of sound and I really think it's because there's, there's angels singing with us. This is music that Swami heard and wrote down. And so they come for the party. Or, or you feel like there, there's, you can see that the human bodies stop about halfway back, but the, the room is full. You just know that the room is full. Now, I was with Swami this last weekend. I mean, that's why I wasn't in, uh, that's why I didn't have class. We went, we, we just spent a few days with him and, He'd given, he brought this book about ghosts to us and so we were reading it and we were all just talking about it. And, uh, and there was this picture of all these beings around us, you know, 
taking us one way or another. And I said, sir, we're always, I mean, life is a team event, isn't it? We're always part of this group. And he sort of said, of course. Now, it's a very interesting thought. This is where I'm coming. You see, it's a very interesting thought because we only see this one. I, I, was, I recently made something which is a, you know, it's a, it's a prototype for others. And I said, well, I fitted it on my body because that's the body that I have with me all the time. And it was the most convenient one to fit it on, of course, because there was no body, other body with me. This is the body that's always with me. My husband is around a lot, you know, but still, this is the one that I always have with me. And because it appears to have edges, we tend to think of ourselves as moving through this world alone. Even if we have this idea in our mind that we're disciples, that God is with us, that our guru is looking out for us, suddenly, through the medium of this man, just talking about all these astral spirits, and this is again what Master is always telling us about angelic beings trying to influence us and dark beings trying to influence us and us being caught in the middle, we're never alone. I mean, literally, we're never alone. And all of our inspirations, thoughts, are not individual, they're universal. We merely tune into levels of consciousness. Now, ultimately, when we have our final revelation about the nature of reality, we perceive that we are all part of this web of creation. But even in the meantime, we're a big hockey team. You know, we're just moving down that field together. We never grab the puck and just run by ourselves. Now, Isn't that an interesting idea? Doesn't that really change everything? Think how lonely and helpless we feel all the time. But we're always surrounded. I had a very, this was more about the gurus, but I I had the sense of the team. In the last month of my mother's life, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's and lived about 15 years. And the end was pretty grim, as uh, Parkinson's is not pretty. And uh, she was, she fought that, absolutely virtually to the last minute. And, but the last month, it began to go to her brain. I mean, she remained annoyingly sharp about every detail. When they moved in the last month, they moved out of their home and they moved into this uh, retirement community. Assisted living, really. And I, like, I just tried to sneak a few things in on my mother. She noticed every one of them and didn't want them. You know, she wanted her way, not my way. I just couldn't get away with anything. But then she started having these seizures, and she died within a few weeks. She didn't last much longer. And about two weeks into that month, um, she had one of these brain things, and we went to the emergency room, and, um, you know, the emergency room, you get there, and then they put you in a bed, and then you're pretty much on your own for quite some time once they figured out that it was over, and she was just, she was still alive, but she was just there. We're in, we were in this big curtained room and my poor little mother by this time is just exhausted and she's just curled up here and it's, it'd been pretty ugly. And I sort of looked around that empty room and I spoke to all of the masters and I said basically, look, if I've ever done anything that has served your work, I'm going to call in every favor that you owe me at this point. <laughs> and I could feel, you know, that room fill up. I can't see it, but I I just felt that room fill up, you know, with the masters or their agents. And we just had a pretty strong conversation that, 
you know, I have put up with this for a long time. I realized that at first I wanted them to go away for my own convenience, and now I recognize that they had to learn things. But enough is enough. You know, we're just... And I wanted to cash in all my chips and get that poor woman out of that body, and she died in two weeks. In fact, I flew to Europe on Sunday. On uh, Tuesday morning, my sister called, said, Mom died. You know what I said? Good for her! Just like that. You know, I'm sort of like... uh, Yogis can have an unusual attitude toward death. But she'd been struggling so hard to stay in that body. And it was really, the body was just over. It was just time to go. I was so proud of her for just vacating. Good for her. I was in Italy and I I didn't fly back, but we agreed that I wouldn't tell anyone that my mother had died because they would have just had a fit that I didn't just fly back home instantly. But it just wasn't necessary. I'd helped her through. But you see, that's what we're living in. We're living in, at all times, in this community of, of our own relatives, our own friends, our expanded spiritual family, friends from past lives that we don't know, soldiers who've been assigned to us, you know, just like they're trying to do a good work, go down and help them. You know, troop number seven has got you this week, guardian angels, gurus. It, it, this is what we're, we're living in. And the more we attune ourselves to that, you see how much creative freedom there is in that reality? See all the pressure that goes off of us? Now, of course, we have to attune ourselves to it. And first we'll take a break. Okay. Um, There were several interesting thoughts brought up during the break. So before I go into those, does anyone have any other questions or thoughts? Yes, Jason. Um. Over the last few years, I made many attempts to do a medical procedure called dialysis. Uh-huh. And uh, suffice to say, after three years, I gave it up. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I gave it up, I couldn't explain to my doctors. But the reason was, in the dialysis center, there were these horrid beings mm. hovering all the time on this death energy, just trying to... It's where they take your blood out and put it back in these big machines. Mm -hmm. And I was plunged into terrible depressions being around this energy. (laughs) And I couldn't tell my doctor that there's all these things going on in the air. So I finally found a way. I just said, I would get too depressed after each session to continue. Interesting. But the energy was so clear and so dark. It's the same type you were talking about in bars and other places. I'm not going to. I I absolutely trust your experience. But I I know that there are people who don't feel that way about it. So I I don't want to say categorically. Oh, I know. I'm not saying everybody does. But I was sensitive. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's it's very interesting. There's... um, This is related to what you're saying. But uh, Daniel Brinkley who has really advocated hospice work and a respectful dying, and you know, he's done great work over the last few decades. And uh, he, he talked about the, the so-called medical crisis in America is based on greed, like all the crises are right now, but not because, not insurance company greed, something that he called life greed. 
that people are greedy for life and when the end of life comes, his statement is, which I've heard verified by others, that 70% of every dollar spent on medicine is spent in the last six months of life to extend life by an average of 21 days. That's the numbers that he gave out. And he said it's because when death comes, everybody considers it an enemy to be vanquished instead of a friend that's just coming to work with you. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, draw too specific a point on it because you hear so many stories about how people get to finish their karma because of you know, dramatic medical procedures that allow them to do this or that. I know when one of my friends had cancer and she was trying to decide whether to take chemo, and uh, she actually made the decision to do it, but then didn't. Um, and she went on for ten more years. But she said, she said, why can't I just change my consciousness? I said, well, your body may run out before you get around to getting it all straightened out. <laughs> and chemo could just give you a little more time to get your consciousness straight. And you know, that's a very valid way to think about it. it. It can sometimes be the catalyst at that point. But I know you've spoken of that before, Jason, and I find it extremely interesting. You know, that's sort of what the environment is, what the consciousness is, what people are doing, what kind of fear is involved. It's very um, interesting. Uh, What kind of curse might be on that particular facility? You know, seriously, what kind of um, vortices of energy have gotten going or something like that? Curse I use both literally and and in a colorful way. Curses do exist, but the curse meaning cursed by an energy that's there, making it dark. Um, Is there anyone else? During the break, uh, Brenda was talking to me about this concept called indigo children, which without going at great length one way or another on that, she said one of the things that is purported about these souls coming in is that they're connected to each other on some kind of a grid, you know, a grid of light. And uh, let's see, what was the other thing? What did you say to me? Oh, Cast- yes. And he talked about how Carlos Castaneda was connected to his teachers and they had their shamanistic groups and they were also on these threads. And that's really, I don't have the um, insight to be able to say, yes, then there it is, and it goes like this, and it's hanging around over there, and this line goes to Reno, and that one goes... But but uh, the image of it is really exactly what it, it really does feel like. And what it, it's about... You see, now this whole world is vibrations. That's what we have to constantly come back and remember. Because we live in physical bodies, and because we seem to be you know, separate from one another... We forget that all that's happening is that consciousness or everything is vibrating at different rates. And the reason we don't fall through the floor is because the different vibrations don't mesh. And when we're talking about these non-physical worlds, one of the things that Master says and all of these writers speak about is that the lower vibrations it, on, on planet Earth people of all different vibrations are hanging around together in physical bodies. You know, we, you can sit down in Starbucks and, you know, some really... <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I 
One of my friends was meditating early one morning and she was certain she was having a deep experience. Turned out the landlord was out there with a flashlight trying to figure out what was wrong with the water heater. (laughs) She was seeing all these flashes of light. She was so excited. (laughs) We were in, in, when we still had our church over in the office building above Kinko's over on California Avenue. These are, you know, these are very primitive tech days. One day in the middle of the Sunday service, this mmm starts like this. And because I'm such a blabbermouth, I stop everything. We, what, you know, what is that? Can we get the sound system? We spend about 10 minutes, five minutes trying to sort it all out. We couldn't settle it, so we just went on. And then finally, sort of, you know, 15 minutes later, we said, oh gosh, it stopped. Turned out somebody had a key finder in their purse and a and you find it like that, and so they were chanting. <laughs> and the key finder started buzzing, and when the person went in to write a check for the offering, it was like, oh my God, and they clicked it all like <laughs> So we do. We were, we were traveling with Swami, just, we had his bags all packed up, and there was this, we thought that they were doing jackhammering outside, and it turns out his electric toothbrush had turned on inside his suitcase. <laughs> It was the strangest thing. You know, it took us longer than you would think to isolate it down to the bag, which was right at our feet. Finally, David began to realize that the noise was emanating from the suitcase. <laughs> Just to get very confused. We have the world, we want it to stay orderly. Okay, having said all of that, we're talking about it's all vibrations. And when these souls, including Master, talk to us about those worlds, dark vibrations, I was, I was saying that we're all mixed up on this planet when when Brenda's machine started singing to us. Um, the, we're all mixed up on this planet. We can all be a very, very different vibrations, you know, right next to each other at times. Um, but in the non-physical worlds, the, the worlds are, are homogeneous. So the vi- vibratory groups stay together. But higher vibrations can go down into lower vibrations in order to uplift them. But darker vibrations can't come up and pollute the, the more refined worlds, which is a great relief. <laughs> but that's one of the reasons why the physical world is so challenging and is a good learning place, because we have to cope. Um, but let's see now. Oh, but, but one of the reasons that in the higher vibrations you can communicate without speech and so on is because you're on the same wavelength. You don't have to fight so hard to understand each other. But whatever we're in tune with, whoever we're in tune with, anywhere on the planet, you know, we can instantly meld with that because it's all about vibrations. This whole physical world is just an illusion. This is what we're learning. We're dissolving, the, we're dissolving distance right now with technology. Whereas before, you know, if somebody lived in Burma, they would never see this country and we would never see them except some, you know, adventurous soul who would spend months and months and months trying to get to that part of the world. And now we can just go to the airport and get on a plane. In a very short time, we're there. And we can uh, email instantly. We can talk over the Skype. We can simultaneously chat. And just distance just goes away. And I remember just that, how exciting the fax machine was. I put, I put this piece of paper in, and the message, I, you know, it took me a while to realize it wasn't the paper itself, but the message... You know, somebody in the Calcutta Hotel was pulling my reservation up, just even at the same time that I'm sliding it in. Distance just disappears, physical space. Um, So 
we're beginning to understand by technological demonstrations, you know, that we can connect. But the, the greater and more profound is that we can connect through consciousness. But we can connect above all to those realities that are on the same wavelength that we're on. Because that's when the, the energies can merge. So what I was saying that that's when the energies can merge is when the vibrations are the same. So this image of whether this whole indigo children thing is true or not, which I'm not qualified to comment on, but the idea of it is that because these souls are coming to the planet for the same purpose, because they're on the same vibratory level, they naturally can find each other and feel each other's consciousness and communicate without the intervening necessity of words. Words are just an effort to put form onto vibration. I've, I was uh, very interested, I mean, more than once, but once recently when Swami Kriyananda was talking, I was extremely aware of the fact that he, uh, that, that he, he was emanating this vibration, and as the vibration emerged from him, he would paste words on it. And so he was giving us all these words, um, and then we were translating them into thoughts, but, but he was not giving words. He was really giving vibrations and then just putting the words onto it. I found that when I was in Italy this last time in the spring, too. Um, I, I was, one night I was tired because I'd been working, helping him type up a book, and so I just didn't have a lot of mental energy left. And he was giving a program, and he was speaking Italian. If I concentrate very, very hard... I can understand about half of what he says because I know what he's going to say. I mean, if I can get the theme, I can follow it. Uh, if he suddenly started talking about a recipe for risotto or something, I wouldn't know what it was. <laughs> but when he tells a story or a philosophical point. But I was just, I kept forgetting to concentrate. I just kept forgetting to concentrate. But I felt completely engaged with his speech. And just com- like completely listening and absorbing. And I was even laughing at the right places. But I didn't have the foggiest idea what he was saying. <laughs> it was, it was a, a very dramatic demonstration of just how the vibrations come across. Now, all of this is about attunement. Which I don't, I'm not going to get into it enough to consider it done. So we'll do lesson three again next week. But all of this is about attunement. Now, what we have to understand is the the vibrations exist and the question is what are we going to receive this is the statement in of jesus in the bible as many as received him to them gave he the power and see jesus is there all the, the, the great masters are there they're just putting out the energy why isn't everybody uplifted because not everybody can attune themselves to the vibration that that the Master is putting out. So the project becomes, what vibration are we in? Um, Speaking of this web also, and you know the image that Swami gave us for this time was the spider web of light, in which we sit like individual dewdrops, but how the spider web all connects, and that we're all part of that web through these threads of light. I've shared with some of you before what I... It was after we worked on uh, the first publication of The Path, which Swami's just reissued that book after 30 years um, as The New Path. This was his autobiography, so this would have been 1977 or 78. Swamiji finished the book. He, <laughs> he always works to the last minute. He, he, he was going to India for six months to go into a long seclusion after finishing that book. 
he, we were in the car and he was dictating into a dictaphone the captions for the photographs going through like this, going to the Sacramento airport. And just as we made the last turn into the airport, he finished the last one, <laughs> then got on the plane and left. And then uh, a, a small group of us had the responsibility for producing the book. And this was before email, so we're, you know, we're sending airmail letters back and forth to India. It was kind of a mess. And we did a few things that he was not as happy about as he might have been. Um, but we worked really hard to make this deadline. It was, it, well, it was an insane project, really. This was, again, before computers, but we, had, we lived up in Ananda Village, and we had access to a machine in San Francisco where you would type it in, and it would make like a Braille tape. And, I mean, it was like a Braille tape, and then you would feed it in, and then it would print out your pages. And we had no money to produce this book, and we had free access to that machine on weekends. So, like, on Friday, somebody would drive down there, and they would camp in some very bad area of San Francisco, and the girls would just stay inside, and they would type this thing, and then they would bring the tapes back up, and then we'd run them through some machine that we have, and we'd print them out, and then on Friday, they'd go down and do it again. That book, the last... The last thing that was done on that book was this woman named Shankari hand-assembled in eight-point type the name Gyanamata for the index. <laughs> because, and if you look really closely somewhere in that index, you can kind of see that they wiggle, but because we just couldn't take another trip to San Francisco to get the word Gyanamata. So she found all the letters and put it together. But it was a big project. It's the end of all of this. I just, that's just a sidelight. We got the book done for him. And, uh, but we were exhausted. And I went to visit my parents, and I immediately became really sick. I rarely get sick, but I just got really sick. And I got, had this really high fever. When my fever went down to about 102, I thought I was well. I don't know what it was at its height. But I was just completely out of my mind. And, uh, and then I had, so I had to stay there like twice as long as I had planned. And I was just kind of hanging around with my parents, just hanging around, like, you know, (laughs) sitting on the couch watching television, you know, just sitting at the dinner table, just trying to get my consciousness back. And because I was such a low energy, I just felt this influence. And this influence was sort of saying, gee, it's kind of comfortable here. You know, they have indoor plumbing, electricity. (laughs) These were things I didn't have. You know, I don't have to work so hard here. Maybe my dad, I could work for my father. You know, it's kind of nice here. You know, just that energy. And, and, I, and then I, I had this, this image that came to my mind, like almost this force that wanted me to speak, to just say, I think I'll just stay here. My parents accepted that I was at Ananda, but to say that they were enthusiastic would really be exaggerating. Um, if I just announced to them that I was going to spend the rest of my life just living there with them, that would have just been like so great as far as they were concerned. It would have seemed so reasonable. And vaguely, I had this thought that if I did that, then there would be this really big reaction at, at the other end of my life, you know, the place I'd come from. And just one night sitting there, just about to tell my parents, I think I'll just spend the rest of my life with you, I felt this, this string of light. And it just came right out of my heart. And I don't actually see things, but I could almost see it. And I could feel, I could see it like going over the map of California. My parents live in Los Angeles. It was going over the map of California, and it was tied to Ananda Village. And it was just this, this very, very thin stream of light. And there were all these demons, and they were bouncing on it. They were trying to break it in half. And I could just really feel they were trying to break my connection with that, that reality. 
was, it was so vivid, but it didn't work because I knew that I wasn't going to do it. So I got myself together and got out of there eventually. But that's exactly what's happening. We're, we're very much on these threads. And don't ever think for a minute that you're not. You're tied to your brothers and sisters on the spiritual path. You're tied to your physical people. You're tied to all kinds of things. You're tied to all the things that you've ever desired. All of these things are all playing with us. And which ones are actually operative in our lives depends entirely on the vibrations that we ourselves emanate. Isn't that interesting? That's why we polish our heart and emanate these wonderful things. That's why we say, Om Guru, Om Guru, Om Guru. That's why we chant. That's why we meditate. Because it's just completely from hell itself to the highest heaven. And what merges with us is who we are. Just like that. All right. I think that's enough for tonight. There's a lot more to say about this lesson, so stick with lesson three. And we'll see you.